Ladies and gents, welcome back to Voices of Construction with Noah Baker. Hope everything's going well. I know we're starting to see the creep in of the Delta variant and COVID coming back and masks coming back and things of that nature. All I ask is you guys stay safe out there and respectful and and keep a good good head on your shoulders and maybe not believe everything you see in the media. Maybe do. It's completely up to you, but I know I got some some trips playing this summer and it stressed me out that they'll be canceled, but you can only hope for the best and, and move on from there. So with, with that said, and that, that wonderful positive note for you, hopefully you're not listening to this first thing in the morning. Um, but we have another episode for you here on Voices of Construction with Ross Sterling um, from Orbiz. Orbiz is a uh, consulting company mostly focused on on lean practices and, and mining and construction and, and many different fields, but got in touch with Ross uh, because our two companies have partnered up. Really wanted to bring him to you guys, not only for his insane knowledge base on lean and, and his story and everything he can bring to the show, but also just because he is a hilarious, great guy um, with a ton of knowledge to share. In fact, he is born and raised in the UK, um, been working in New Zealand, Australia, been in Australia with his his partner now for around 12, 13 years, I believe. Um, fun fact, even though he's from the UK and um, lives in Australia, he is a massive, massive Red Sox fan here out of Boston and been to every game in the World Series, things of that nature. So. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. He, he brings to light a lot of things about planning process and, and lean processes and just the way teams can collaborate and contribute to each other in the success of a project. So I hope you get something from this. Um, I, I hope there's there's something that we can bring to this audience that, that we haven't brought before. Um, so I, I bring you here, Ross, uh, a great conversation with a great guy. Um, enjoy this one and, and let me know what you think. Thanks again. Enjoy. We've we've never actually met face to face, so I, I loved no. you know, our, our first conversation, and I think it would be great to kind of just tell the story of who you are, more more about where you're from, and and how you got into the business, and and the the role you're in now. Okay. Well, I guess if I if I start pretty much at the beginning, go, go all the um, way back to childhood. So yeah, go, go all the way. Go. <laughs> Well, almost as far back, yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, I live in Australia now and I've been here for 13, 14 years. But, you know, I was born and raised in England. Um, and I actually um, I grew up in a, in a small village in, in the north of England um, on the edge of an area that they call the Peak District. Um, and it's you know, a very uh, industrial area. So um, it used to be, you know, all the villages around where I grew up used to be all coal mining villages. Like every village had a coal mine and, you know, probably 50% of the male population worked down the coal mines until the 1980s right. when, when that industry sort of came to a, a crunching halt. Um, but also it's a, a very kind of industrial area in terms of, um, you know, manufacturing, engineering, um, steel, things like that. So um, actually there's, a, there's a, a small village a few miles from where I grew up um, that's kind of recognized as the birthplace of the industrial revolution. Um, so, uh, some guy called Richard Arkwright back in the 1700s, um, was the first guy to harness water and use hydropower to, 
drive mills for uh, creating thread from wool and cotton and stuff. Um, and yeah, so there's I guess be an that, amazing that... full circle moment that all happens right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that and, and that whole idea that he came up with, uh, you know, with industrializing, you know, the process of creating thread, um, you know, I guess went all over the world. You know, he was one of the first guys to you know build mass manufacturing factories. Um, and the area, like I say, which is a few miles from where I grew up, is now a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. You know, all these old mills and that that he built. Um, yeah, it's a pretty amazing place, really. Um, so I kind of, I grew up in that area, um, and even today, um, you know, there's still a lot of you know high-end um, engineering and, and manufacturing in, in that area. Um, so you know, Rolls-Royce Aerospace, where you know we're a large portion of the uh, engines that go on on aircraft around the world, their local offices and one of their biggest plant is there um Bombardier which is like he's now Alstom you know we've got a big railway uh, plant there building trains um and there's a Toyota plant there which is you know where I ended up working basically um and uh you know having having left school um you know, I didn't go to university um you know I went into various sort of manufacturing type roles um and in my late teens you know went to Toyota because it was locally it was seen as you know one of the best places you could go and get a job job for life good salary good pension um you know all that kind of stuff um and that's how I ended up at Toyota and that's how I got into lean <laughs> you know I didn't know it at the time um because I'd never heard of lean um I just went for the job um and no, this, uh, is, this is such a a good tie back to to future life story right here not only were we yeah. talking about mining and industrial construction, we're also tied it back to uh, Lean and Toyota. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I I joined uh, Toyota when I was about nineteen or or maybe just twenty, um, and spent about nine years there. Um, you know, some of us on the inside, it's almost like we refer to it as the University of Toyota because you learn so much there, um, and at the time you didn't even realize what you were learning. Um, because, you know, when you've only worked in one place from a young formative age, you don't really know, you know, what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, you know, you think what you're experiencing when working at Toyota, what we did, um, was, you know, this is how everybody does it. Um, it wasn't until later when I left and went into consulting that I realized that Toyota was a little bit different <laughs> to, to everywhere yeah. else. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that for sure. Yeah. So yeah, so you know, I just went into Toyota, uh, working in uh, manufacturing, you know, working on an assembly line, building cars, um, and you know, probably didn't even take it that seriously for a couple of years, um, and then maybe matured a little bit and sort of recognised the opportunity that was there in terms of the training, the education, and you know, the opportunity to progress within the organisation into more senior roles and responsibility, and obviously more money, um, and sort of then embraced that. Um, you know, and I, uh, that took me into sort of pr production management roles and I got involved in projects, which is, I guess, part of the education that they give you there. You know, they, they get you involved in, in projects so you can learn that side of things. Um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, relaying out the factory, um, you know, and the process flow to uh, create more, you know, more efficiency um, or, you know, whether it's um, working on a project to introduce a facelift to a car or even a you know, whole new model. Um, you know, I got involved in quite a few of those over that period of time, you know, and you, you learn different aspects of, 
how Toyota basically do business, you know, um, how they build cars, but how they set up to build cars in such an efficient manner, um, which is obviously, you know, the underpinnings of, of lean as we, as we now call it. Um, and after, after about nine years of that, um, I was actually encouraged by somebody that maybe I should consider going into consulting, you know, maybe he saw that, you know, maybe that was a better career path for me or something I'd be good at. Um, and uh, they say, be careful what you ask for, because, um, you know, I'd, I'd asked around around where those opportunities might, uh, might lie. Um, and I already knew a few people that had left and gone down that route. So, I, you know, I spoke to them people um, and I very quickly got an interview and a job offer and like literally within weeks, um, I was a consultant. <laughs> it's kind of, um, you know, figuring, figuring out how to do that, basically. Um, and uh, yeah, I come from, I guess, you know, the, the area that I grew up that I talked about, you know, and working mm -hmm. within a tw 20 mile radius of, you know, where, where I'd, I'd grown up um, at the Toyota plant. Um, and the first consulting gig I went on was up in Glasgow in Scotland. I had to get on a plane on a Monday and back on a Friday to do it. And I was, I'd, you know, never done anything like that before. I was 28 <laughs> years old and suddenly I was in this whole new world. But um, yeah, actually, I mean, going into consulting was the second best thing I ever did. You know, the first one was obviously joining Toyota in the first place and getting that education that allowed me to then go into consulting. Um, yeah, and funnily enough, I ended up working in Glasgow with Rolls-Royce Aerospace, <laughs> which is, you know, one of the uh, organizations yeah. <laughs> that, you know, is right, actually right on my doorstep. And a lot of my friends that I went to school with, they actually joined Rolls-Royce as apprentices because Rolls-Royce still uh, run quite a, extensive apprenticeship program um, in the area so uh, yeah I ended up spending what three months up in in Scotland um, and then I was asked you know would I be interested in going to Australia um, and funnily enough going through the interview process for the consultancy firm I knew they had an office in Sydney and that was a you know of interest you know wouldn't mind going traveling to Sydney and see what's happening down there um, so they said do you want to go to Australia? I said, yeah, of course. You know, I'll go down there for a couple of months. So I made that commitment. And then a couple of days later, I got the phone call. And so oh, we made a mistake. It's actually New Zealand, not Australia. I was like, well, I don't really know the difference. So I'll go, I'll go there too. <laughs> so uh, I actually find myself in New Zealand um, back in January 2007, um, working with a company that was building luxury boats. So yachts and, and motorboats, so multi-million dollar boats. Um, you know, they were looking to implement lean manufacturing principles into how they built boats to improve quality and reduce cost. Um, and I went down for four months that turned into 12 months. Um, and again, that was, you know, such a great experience. You know, it was on the other side of the world. It's just, you know, completely new, uh, new world for me. Um, yeah. And, uh, as I say, it ended up being 12 months instead of four. Um, so I went back to the UK, you know, for Christmas, it was at the end of the year. Um, and you know, the, 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 office down in Australia who was running the project in New Zealand, you know, they wanted me to stay down here and, or, or move to Australia. Um, and I was like, well, you know, I need to go back to the UK. I've got a, I've got a car parked on my mum and dad's drive. You know, I've got a suitcase full of clothes <laughs> and that's all I've got. I came here for four months. So, so I went back to the UK and, you know, middle of winter, um, you know, cold like it is up in Boston in winter and, uh, where you guys are. Um, and after a couple of months, I thought, you know, Australia and New Zealand actually <laughs> sounds quite a good idea about now. Um, so I stuck my hand up and said, yeah, well, you know, keen to go uh, back down and see some more of Australia and New Zealand. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and they basically made that happen. Um, but on this time, I actually took a full-time role with the Australian business 
you know, and got a visa so I could go and work full time um, or, or for a longer term down here. Um, the idea right. was that I'd do that for a couple of years and then maybe go back to the UK or maybe I'd go somewhere else because you know, the, the organization I was working for, they had an office in Singapore. They were talking about opening up in the US. So there's all these sort of options that might sort of unfold. Um, but anyway, yeah, 2008, March, I moved to Australia and I've been here ever since. Um, so, yeah, the two years turned into, you know, 13 plus years. Um, I never really looked back, I suppose. Um, and, uh, well, yeah, I mean, okay, you, you've already given me about 40,000 stories and questions that <laughs> I, I need to ask you. <laughs> Maybe fifty percent might, <laughs> might just be relevant to me and and things that I'm wondering, but I'll try to keep it um, down down to the listeners and, and all of that. But I mean, for the first off, the themes in your life seem to be very much reoccurring and happened upon at the same time, which is very interesting in the sense that you ended up at Toyota where you are now lean consulting in yeah. industries like mining and things of that nature, resort all the way back to where you grew up and what you saw growing up. Yeah, and I guess so. All parts of your life resorting back to Rolls Royce and things of that nature <laughs> are just, yeah, you should yeah. write a book, man, for sure. <laughs> the, uh, the links, the, <laughs> link, the links are, are, are pretty funny, aren't they? Um, in, in that respect. Um, yeah. Yeah, the birthplace of industrial revolution and all that. Right, it's just it's perfect. So for everyone that that can't can't see Ross and, and me right now, he's actually in You're in Sydney, right? Downtown Sydney. Uh, Melbourne, Melbourne. Melbourne. So I, I, uh, yeah, so I, I lived in Sydney for about eleven years, um, and we moved to Melbourne a couple of years ago. So my partner took a, a job down here. Uh, so she's from Sydney originally, and um, wanted to. Uh, experience living somewhere different um she was thinking london paris or new york i think but um you know with me being in the in the line of work i was in the, the furthest i could go is melbourne so that's why we ended up in melbourne new york didn't work you should have come and hung out with me i was in new york until three four years ago <laughs> um but no i mean for for everyone listening it's it's the crack of morning where ross is well not not 5 a.m. or anything of that nature, but it's it's bordering on 8, 8.30 p.m. where I are, so we're just having this conversation in opposite ends of the world at opposite times, which is also kind of interesting and, and fun because, you know, between have, having a beer and having a cup of coffee, it's it's quite different. <laughs> but, and, it, and it is winter here, so the, the sun has only just come up, um, right. and it is still quite chilly outside so uh, you know we work in celsius down here but um growing up in england i did celsius and fahrenheit so it's probably like you know 60 degrees outside um from an american oh, freezing, perspective Ross, how are you still alive <laughs> gosh it's, it's chilly you know it's probably uh, you ice put, on your windows i mean <laughs> I, have to put, I have to put a long sleeve top on to take the dog for a walk in the morning that's for sure <laughs> there, there's there's another topic we can talk about your your buddies when you go back home hating on you for calling 60 degrees fahrenheit cold but you know we'll, we'll leave that for later in this i really yeah. wanted to touch on i feel like you like working at toyota just absolutely compelled you into that that lean mentality and and i find kind of find myself 
working through the aspects of continuous improvement and learnings and all of that, that I happened upon and really didn't realize that construction didn't do when I started in this industry. So you kind of, you kind of hit on like, I didn't know I was doing something like right or, or what we consider sometimes the right way. And then once I got into that realm, it was like, what are, what is really happening in the world when you got into consulting? But to touch black on um, going into, you know, Toyota and being brand new and working on the assembly line, like you said, you were young, you didn't care, you know. Um, But once you started learning that, how did how did you learn those things? How were they kind of, I guess, embedded in you and how did you see them as successful while you were there? So. It's interesting, right? Because I guess I've been asked this question as a consultant um, in the way of, you know, yeah, like, like, uh, but the way I guess the question has been asked is, you know, because I guess the answer to your question is that the the culture of lean continuous improvement is just completely embedded into that Toyota environment. And people say, you know, how how did Toyota get people to constantly improve things and be constantly, um, you know, trying to improve things? and it's basically measurement drives behavior. So within that Toyota environment, um, everything is measured, you know? So um, we, we, we would measure process times in seconds. You know, it takes two seconds to do this, then three seconds to do that, then five seconds to walk over there, and then six seconds to pick up that part, um, you know, and 15 seconds to put the nuts and bolts on. So, and, and, and then, and that's monitored, you know, constantly, you know, um, you know, everybody's working to, you know, a process that takes one to two minutes. Um, and if there are a few seconds over, you know, several times in a row, it becomes apparent and it can be addressed. Um, you know, and every the standards for safety and quality and everything, everything's controlled. Um, so you can see any deviation from that standard, um, you know, whatever that standard may be. But then also every person is also measured, um, you know, scrutinized quite tightly. So, you know, you will raise an improvement idea every week and every month you will implement one you will uh, identify a safety concern every week um, and countermeasure that safety concern to make sure it doesn't result in someone having an accident and if you don't do it at the end of the year when we sit down and do your performance report guess what you'll be getting a uh, not a very good pay rise um, and not a very good bonus so obviously that motivates people to do everything that they've been asked to do and therefore you know be part of the culture um, and over time, that just becomes entrenched, doesn't it? It's just the way you behave, right? So measurement drives behavior, and we all behave in a way that drives continuous improvement and innovation. Simple as that. Now, when um, it reflects back on on your personal life and your personal payroll and and everything, and being embedded in that culture as well. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's made very difficult for you if you don't play the game. Right. Simple as that. And it, it differs. I mean, I have so many questions about the transition into um, construction and mining where we'll skip over yacht building right now because I, I feel as if I will get so involved personally that all we'll talk about is boats <laughs> and yachts for the next hour and a half. Um, but in in terms of how you then have like gapped that, right? I, I see a lot of ties in Toyota, you're part of the family, you're part of the culture, you're all entwined, you all work for Toyota. And in comparison, we, we look at general contractors, we look at, you know, any any consulting job you walk on where there's multiple entities 
and bridging that gap of kind of singular culture striding to 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 one aspect like you as a consultant have to deal with that that kind of cultural gap all the time and and i actually see it it far less lean in industrial and mining or whatever projects we are on um but how did you kind of overcome that or when did you recognize oh crap, everyone's not in the same family, so they're not working towards the same savings account type mentality. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And how did you kind of deal with that? I mean, it, it's quite challenging, right? I mean, um, I guess one of the things that um, we we often say, particularly to, you know, people who've more, maybe more recently come out of that environment that I described, you know, and come into consulting, um, you know, and, and they, you know, got the idea of, well, you know, we just need to do all these things and they will be just like Toyota. And we say, well, you may be going to have to accept that nobody's ever going to get to that level because it's just not possible, is it? In these different environments, from where we currently are and the way that they're currently structured, like, I mean, construction is a great example where you've got the head contractor and all these subcontractors and, you know, everyone's kind of uh, working fairly independently, although maybe for the overall goal, they're not all one organisation wearing the same badge. You know, because you haven't got that, you're never going to get that level that you've got somewhere at, like Toyota. But also... You know, when you're going from project to project, you know, and the workforce is constantly turning over and some subcontractors are coming in and other ones are going out. Again, you've just not got that kind of consistency, have you? The same people working together to develop that culture. So in, uh, the first thing is, is an acceptance that, well, you, you're probably never going to get to that level because of all those things we've just mentioned. Um, so you've just got to do the best you can in terms of taking them as far as you can um, and I guess, adapting the systems that Toyota would use um, and putting them into that new setting um, to to do that, basically. Um, so it, it's quite interesting. Um, so some of the projects that we've been involved in here in Australia in the last sort of four or five years um, in construction. So here in, in Melbourne, in, in the state of Victoria, um, the Victorian state government have got a, a, a program or project called the Level Crossing Removal Project um it's going to cost them about 10 to 12 billion australian dollars which is what probably 9 billion us dollars to remove 85 level crossings across the suburban area of melbourne so um there's all these i guess just the way that melbourne evolved during the sort of 19th century there's just lots of level crossings cutting across roads um which are you know a safety issue for road and rail users um but also they impact commuter times so people are driving in from the suburbs to get to work on a in a morning um, and they're constantly having to stop at these level crossings on the way to work so it takes twice as long to get to work so so the government of victoria decided right one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to basically get rid of all these level crossings because it's going to you know improve safety improve general productivity obviously it's going to create jobs it's a good investment overall and and the way that they decided to do this because it's such a big program and so complex was to uh, utilize the alliance procurement model. Um, the idea being that um, we'll set up these alliances where you know everyone who needs to be involved in delivering these projects works together in collaboration. Um, it will drive a culture of continuous improvement and innovation um, and it, it, therefore deliver a better outcome for the taxpayer who's ultimately paying for this. Um, now, we've been working in this environment for the last four years with, um, there's about four or five alliances um, that have got different 
packages of work around the city and then there's obviously the government sitting over the top and they're all sort of set up into these collaborative alliance um, arrangements um, and we've been working within them and we've been able to have great success because in that environment where everybody's motivated to work together because um, by working together as a team we all get a better outcome the, the application of the lean and continuous improvement principles work really well you know they've been very well adopted um, and it's actually, I was at a conference in Brisbane um, back in May um, when I was actually allowed out of the house for a short period of time between lockdowns. Um, so it was at a construction conference um, and a gentleman who is the CEO of the Australian Construction Association, which is a, a body, I guess, funded by the, the contract, the construction contracts in Australia to, to sort of lobby for the benefit of, of, of the industry. Um, so he was talking, um, and he, you know, he was sort of calling out the level crossing removal project specifically as a great example of how um, you know the industry can transform itself, um, in, in you know, and, and improve basically going forward. You know, um, because the, the construction industry over here is is under a lot of pressure. There's such a lot of this boom in in construction work, and it's been we're about ten years into it, and I think there's about another ten years of it to run. Of you know, multiple mega projects going on in around the country all at the same time and it's putting massive pressures on um just basically on the on the construction industry workforce in terms of the volume to do all this work but also the capability you know to, to deliver these projects on time and on budget um yeah and it was basically help holding up the level cost removal project is a great example where they you know use this the alliance model um, and they're getting a great outcome um but it's not used that widely um, here um, I believe it was in the past before my time, um, and I think some projects went really bad, so it got it got tarnished as a as a as a way to go. Um, but it seems to be you know coming back as a well maybe we should try this again, but maybe you know, manage it a little bit differently. Um, yeah, that was a very it's, long answer to your question. Interesting... <laughs> no, 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 it's it's perfect. Um, it it's interesting to to talk about kind of the alliance work because we see that with and for everyone listening who doesn't know, Orbitz and, and, and uh, TouchPlan have worked together on a couple of things, but we also have uh, another uh, alliance project out of the UK for you know a, wa a water pipeline with Anglian, and that alliance form has, has seemed to really be a great foundation for transforming yeah. the culture. And we have, you know, similar things like JVs and the joint ventures and, and the way, you know, in your opinion, how that is broken out doesn't seem to embody a singular culture or way of doing things. It's more possibly financial or even publicized in that sense of word, like, you know, with the joint ventures. But with alliances, we really see multiple people coming together for one goal yeah. and then it opens up a ton of different things have you yeah. seen the the kind of joint venture versus alliance how, how would you compare that though i did some work in sydney uh, about three years ago that was a joint venture between two of the major players here in australia um and it was a quite a large complex rail project where they were building a new station but also sort of changing the configuration of the, the railway as it, as it came in and that was quite interesting because I think um, the, the two organisations, one sort of kind of known to be quite innovative, um, 
and um, you know very good for systems and processes and things um, where the other ones maybe know not so much that to be that good at that side of things but they but they're really good at getting the job we done haven't said kind of thing. names yet you don't know no, no, I'm, I'm not that, going to i'm not i'm not yeah, going to um, so, so these two organizations kind of i guess have got different cultures you know um clearly they are very different cultures um and um and different reputations for being you know good at different things and maybe weak in, in other areas um but together um you know i guess they really complemented each other really well um on, on this on this project um and i actually did some work with them um in the way they were managing design um so their their design consultants um you know basically helping them to put in some uh, management systems for basically managing the performance of design because um i think they're on a they went on a, they, were, they went on a fixed cost uh, contract for design and they were worried that design was going to get out of hand basically in terms of the, right. the cost and they're like well how, you know how do we control this it's like well you know let's put some systems in place so we can actually measure performance basically um, and hold them to account um, but back to your point around I guess um, one of the things I've found or I think with alliances you know I guess one of the reasons why alliances are used here in Australia is when it's a very long-term program of work, you know, and, and I guess that also lends itself to building culture um, and and implementing lean and getting the benefits of implementing lean because, you know, um, like I said earlier, the, the level crossings down here, they're doing 86 level crossings um, at, the, at the latest count. They might, they might add to that number. Um, but, um, you know, the idea being that if we learn something on the first one, we can obviously benefit that on the next 85, can't we? And if we learn something on the 40th one, that we can, you know, improve things for the next 46, then then that's a good thing as well. So that that idea of, you know, that long-term approach for creating a culture, creating a management system is also, you know, the benefits rolling on. Um, so you get that return on the investment. Um, that's what makes a big difference. So I guess it works really well in that setting. Um, but, you know, ultimately, even if a construction company um, is only ever doing you know one-off projects um you know maybe dnc um you know if they as an organization embrace lean um they can learn from project to project regardless of the of the procurement model um and yeah but but it, it seems to be so here in australia i i think this seems to be a i'm well, we've talked about my background right so i'm not a civil engineer yeah. and I've, you know i've not been in the construction industry for, for for you know many years you know decades sort of thing like many people i work with have so, you know, I'm certainly not a construction expert, um, but what I see and hear and from what I can understand is, you know, the, the industry over here is very competitive. There's a lot of big players, you know, fighting over, you know, the work that is out there. There is a lot of work out there, but still it's very competitive. And, you know, they talk about this race to the bottom on price. Um, so, you know, because it's so competitive and everybody wants to work, um, the end of the you know, race to the bottom on price, which results in whoever wins the work's got a very, very skinny margin. Um, and you know, when any any sort of slight overspend or if something goes wrong, you could end up you know losing money instead of making money. And I think that creates a bit of a culture of not wanting to try something different, not wanting to invest in a new idea because we haven't really got room for it. You know, well, there's no room for it in the budget. We can't do that. And even if you say, yeah, but you know, if you do this, you know, return on investment will be at least two to three to one. If you do it well, it could be ten to one. You know spend a hundred grand and save a million dollars. It's like, yeah, but if it doesn't, you know, we've already got this really skinny margin and, you know, and it's going to get even skinnier. So I think that whole, yeah, the way that um, 
that the industry is over here from that commercial aspect uh, makes it really difficult basically to get new ideas in you know people just carry on doing it the way they've always done it because they know that way they can kind of just make a little bit um yeah it's um it's interesting and the, the the guy i was talking about earlier on the australian uh, construction association ceo so one of the other things that I've, I've seen him talking a lot about is uh, the UK government last year released um, what they're calling the construction playbook. And what they're trying to do is get, I guess, the, the industry to uh, start playing to a new set of rules or a new set of guidelines on you know, how they uh, tend to work and how people uh, uh, bid for it um, and try and sort of create a, a better playing field um, for the way things are done. So there's you know, less inefficiency um, and, and, and I guess, you know, and, and projects being procured in a better manner so they get delivered at a better price and on time and with less risk and all that sort of stuff. Um, and this guy's talking about, you know, we should be doing the same thing in Australia, you know, and I think it comes back to the point I've just talked about, you know, the way it currently is, um, it's quite cutthroat um, and um, it's kind of unsustainable um, in, in terms of the way it's going. Um, you know, something needs to change. Um, but it's yeah. only going to change from the inside, isn't it? <laughs> so, and, um, and I, I definitely, you definitely see that idea. I mean, it relates back to your alliance projects, right? When you when you find a problem on on project one, you can implement a solution through the next eighty. If you find one on forty, you can implement it across the next forty, so on and so forth. Yeah. And I think we're just, I mean, not just starting to get an appetite in in the US for realizing that for an independent general contractor company. It's like, yeah, this you're implementing a new idea, a new tool, a new process, a new, a new everything. But what you learn from this, you know, hundred story high rise in New York City, you can use on your next one. And exactly. You yeah. can, let's look at this as a 10 year plan. Yeah. Right. If we do a yeah. hundred projects a year at at $140 million and implement the things that we've learned. And I think not only is it human nature to be scared of risking the current, right? The, the what's happening right now. Um, but I also just, I don't think once we kind of cross the chasm of enough people proving that it worked in their business models, then a lot of people will fall in suit. And we have we have GCs like here, like Bolt Construction, I'm sure you've heard of, and, and other general contractors that have kind of led that march in the sense that it's like, we're going to take this chance and we're already seeing kind of the fruits of our labor. Imagine where we're at yeah. in 15 years. Have you have you seen that, that same effect, not just on single projects, but is there any kind of appetite for, for that change and that ideology where... You know, we might not get paid out now, and we might not get paid out in five years, but this is an employee-owned company that should be around for the next 500 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are we planning for, sure. for that now? Um, yeah. And I'd just love to hear kind of what you have on that. I, I know there's there's one um, company um, predominantly here in Melbourne, although they've been building stuff in Sydney and Brisbane and Perth as well. So they're, a, a, I guess, a, a high-end, high-rise um, um construction company you know they build um, high-rise you know high-end apartments and and um, office blocks and things like that um, and they've been implementing lean for about the last five years um, and I've got a, a friend who who's kind of been working with them on that for the last five years um, and yeah they they've they've reached the point where um, 
they're way more competitive than anybody else in the market in that space. Um, they still have years. challenges. Yeah, yeah, in five years. It's not years. very long. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, and the way that plays out, it's quite interesting because they've got competitors who are bigger than them still, um, who are taking jobs on at almost no margin. In fact, some may argue they're taking them on at a small loss just to win the work, you know, to, to basically smother this other company from, from, from winning the work. You know, they're buying it, basically. Um, so, um, because, you know, but that's, that's the position that they force their competitors into. Um, but also, um, you know, he does a lot of, I guess, work with the subcontractors as well. You know, as part of implementing Lean, you know, they've done the supply chain and all the subcontractors. You know, when he talks to them, these a lot of these subcontracts, obviously, they, they work with the organization he's working with, but they work with some of the other competitors as well. And they said, you know, we, if we had our choice, we'd only ever work with you because it's so much easier. You know, it's easy to plan and estimate. And, um, you know, when we know, you know, that uh, the contingency we put in is enough, you know, things aren't going to blow out because you, you, guys, things got, you guys have got things under control. Um, so, yeah, within five years, um, less than five years, you know, they've, they've seen all of those benefits um, come through. So, yeah, it's not even, you know, I think, I think there's a lot more low-hanging fruit than these companies think. And you can obviously get that low-hanging fruit pretty quickly and therefore you've already got the, you know, the, the benefit, haven't you? To your point, onto the next project and the next project and the next project. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, God Especially knows where something like residential, right? Yeah. Residential, yeah. you're repeating yourself very often. And yeah. one of the things that I, I actually wrote down here is is talking about infrastructure and alliance jobs. And, you know, I, I know you guys have looked at at mining before and kind of industrial work. Typically what I've found is they're much, much slower to adopt a lean mentality. And I can tell you, for whatever reason, in the US, on those, say, highway jobs, right, we're, we're building a new rotary or whatever we may be building, they have a mentality even more than the, our command and control prospects or you know, people who are very CPM focused is that you know we don't need that the work we do is 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 not kind of fitted for that that type of thinking and yeah. it's interesting that you've done a lot of that being in your shoes and i can never really put my finger on why that exists except for you know an industry norm where we see it all the time in our industry it's just like yeah no 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 we don't do that we don't necessarily know why but that's just something we yeah. we don't do and and we don't accept so how yeah, did you kind of bridge that that gap, or do you still see it? And is it just a fight that you fight, the the good fight every day to yeah to yeah to, to 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 a degree. So I guess you know the yeah the, the two parts of the answer is you know one part is yeah we're we're fighting that battle every day. You know you go into a new industry or just a new business or a new site, um, you know new new rail depot, new mine site, whatever it might be, construction project, and there'll be some people that are just like well. No, that comes from manufacturing. That won't work here. It won't work in our industry. You know, this is you know our industry is different. You know, <laughs> I guess it's that classic, isn't it? You know, everybody that likes to think that they're they're whatever they do is they're different, special. special. Yeah, they're special. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, like and and uh, you know, but this the level crossing river project that I talked about. So um, at the very beginning, um, you know, we had we had challenges with some people. Like then they literally said that you know like that this won't work here you guys will be gone in six months because it'll fail. 
um, because this is not a repetitive process. It's not manufacturing, and that what you know this stuff that you're talking about just won't work here. Um, and that's almost verbatim <laughs> what, what one guy said who uh, was in a fairly senior role. Um, he's actually one of the biggest advocates now. Um, he's completely embraced it. Um, but yeah, we get that, have that conversation at different levels in in all industries. Um, so I did I did a lot of work in uh, in healthcare many years ago. So um, some here in Australia, and also um, for a period when I was back in the UK between being in New Zealand and in Australia, um, and that was that was interesting because you know again right it's very very different to you know the environment I I, I came from you know and where lean comes from, um, but the principles um, are you know. Uh, basically work you know you can uh, you just got to apply them um, appropriately um, and it was interesting because a lot of the kind of the nursing staff and people like that they just embraced it because anything that they uh, could see might help them they were you know they were so you know, they were flat out they were just trying to help people anything that they thought might help them they would embrace it so uh, that wasn't a challenge but you know some of the more senior people and you know educated people in, in, in the, that setting were much harder to get on board you know they they would you know oh, this that won't work here you know um i mean one of the things that we used to have to teach our guys that were coming out of toyota and coming into that environment was that they couldn't use the c word um in that setting because you know we don't build cars here um so don't use cars as a you know as an analogy for you know way the way we should do things basically um right so what we've had to do is I guess adapt the language and adapt the way that we sell how uh, you know how the, the system works um, and how the tools work. Um, firstly, we've kind of I guess got a model that's quite um, industry agnostic, so it can apply anywhere. But then in the areas where you know we've got a specialist approach for this is how we do things in mining and this is how we do things in construction, this is how we do things in rail. You know, we've developed you know specific language and specific approaches for them environments. And um, so, yeah, it's, I guess it's adapting the principles and, you know, making them so they fit in this new environment, basically, and then and the language and being conscious that, you know, um, you know, these people that um, think that their industry is different and they're special. Well, they're actually right. You know, um, you have to actually embrace that. Yeah, you're right. It's a different industry and we need to recognize that um, and change our approach and our language to make it work for you rather than say, well, no, 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 it does work. You know, you should just, you know, listen to what we're saying and. You know, and change your ways. So I think that's how you, you know, you get the success um, in recognizing that they're right, basically. Um, and it's up and to us to find a way of getting them to understand. Yeah, there, there's something interesting you said about just just with the the healthcare um, project and and what I found working in in a, a lean tool back in the day and and just talking about these processes, you know. 50 times a day working in sales is the the relevance of kind of the the whole holistic idea of of what's going to happen and the change in process and the results from it and and talking to that at a, at a c-suite level or a vp level it is there there is a bit of pushback and the results and the roi and things of that nature but some of the biggest game changers I saw were really what I kind of consider like a, a grassroots effect of it and selling that grassroots effect in the sense that, you know, your nurses were 
working 20 hour days or something of that nature where yeah in construction we have people that can this system help me save 20 minutes to get home to my kids can can we cut our meetings in half can yeah. we reduce safety incidents can we make sure that this is on site when we need it so i didn't drive three hours to my job site just to sit in my truck and miss you know my my daughter's birthday or whatever it may be it's it's really i see the and and i think naturally we always try to change process from the up the c-suite down and we've seen a huge effect of showing those smaller results on a grassroots level and really convincing in both ways up and down where you know yeah. a project manager can spend more time with his children simply by yeah. implementing these things and yeah. we really see those people affect that that c-suite level and i'm sure that's a challenge that you hit when you're on site and i would just love to hear how you kind of approach that i know i kind of explained how, how i've approached it in the sense that where it's like let's manage your time let's manage your your work-life balance your stress your transparency into knowing how to do your job when you show up in the morning instead yeah. of wondering what like fire extinguisher you should grab to put out what fire and is that something that helped you and your company kind of sell this this yeah. mentality in this process or is it something that you kind of don't don't look at no yeah absolutely is i mean um as you touched on um you know if you um if you want to show that you're actually saving time down at the the front line and, and maybe uh, creating more time for people to spend at home that manifests itself with a c-suite as overtime doesn't it so like, oh we've cut overtime by 20 percent they're like fantastic we've got a cost saving oh but also that means that those people who aren't stuck at work are now spending more time at home so they've got a better work-life balance um but um i guess a better example um and talking directly to what you're you're sort of talking about in terms of that grassroots level so um, when we were working in healthcare, um, one of the strap lines for, I guess, the whole reason for doing what they were trying to do was releasing time to care. So the idea was that if the nurses, you know, um, em environment is more efficient um, when, you know, um, when they're running around doing tasks like administration or taking a, a patient from A to B or fetching some medicine or something for a patient, you know, whatever it might be, um, you know, doing the meals run, all the different things that have to be done in a, in a, in a hospital. Um, if they can do that more efficiently, that basically frees up time to then invest that time with the patients. So you're basically releasing time to care. So in term, in term, instead of doing the, 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 the stuff that would be referred to as waste, you know, it has to be done, but it's not really adding value. Um, in the healthcare setting, the value is actually spending time with the patients. It's, it's proven that the more time that the nurses are able to spend with patients, patients actually get better quicker. Um, I'm not a scientist, I've not done that, that analysis, but yeah. that's, that's what they said at the time. Like if the nurses spend more time with the patients, they'll get better quicker. It's just, it's just the way it is, you know, so yeah, we're actually releasing time, to, <laughs> we're, we're releasing time to care for them. And I guess also make sure that, you know, things don't go wrong, you know, because if you're busy and distracted and the patient's maybe deteriorating, you might be, won't notice that. Um, so when we were doing the grassroots, um, you know, improvements, um, one of the starting points was, you know, the real basic, um, how do we improve efficiency? How do we do a 5S project to make things 
uh, run more efficiently on the ward or you know around the uh, the operating theatre, all them kind of things. Um, we'd actually map out um, how far people were having to walk to complete tasks, whether it was taking a patient from A to B or whether it was to fetch something, whatever it might be. Um, and you do this, you know, a day in the life of a nurse um, and, and figure out how much time they're spending doing all this stuff that is is not really adding value, not really caring for the patient, and then how much time they're actually spending with the patient. And we'd literally go down to, you know, the, the stepometers that where you, you walk with a wheel on the ground and it measures how far they're walking. And you would you actually do that, you know, and do a spaghetti diagram of their movements. And then when you put all the improvements in, you do it again and you go, well, you know, look at the difference. You know, they're spending 60% less time doing these tasks. They, they're walking, you know, 50% less in a day. So they're not as tired, they're not as worn out. And they're also therefore spending more time with the patients to care for them. But they're also going home in a better frame of mind because they've not been running around all day doing, you know, 25,000 steps. Um, but also because they've actually spent time caring for the patients, which is actually what they're supposed to do. They feel better about themselves because they feel like they've done a better job. So all of that kind of grassroots benefit, you can obviously report that through, but also just the, I guess the sentiment from that level up through management in terms of the fact that the, you know, they, they feel better about what they're doing. And, you know, um, I guess job satisfaction is, is up, obviously gets looked on um, as, a, as a benefit, you know, as much as, you know, the, the cost benefit or the cost saving benefit that, that it might result in as well. Yeah. And and I see and and convey that that like exact sentiment in in construction companies that we talk to, right? If we can if we can get a a PE or an assistant PM or a PM to release administrative load on let's say practicing the last planner system or pull planning when it comes to spending yeah. five hours, ten hours a week on Excel spreadsheets and and all of all of the actual work because I don't think anyone argues that the results and the learnings aren't beneficial to our company. It's just the fact like, do I want to put in the work to to allow that to happen? Right. Yeah. And yeah. And we see that a lot in well if we can save half the time they're transferring resources and information from spreadsheet to spreadsheet or getting status updates that gets yeah. them home earlier, they're happier. It gets you yeah. status updates before you normally do. The information is correct, and and really we've transformed that as well, all the way from grassroots to that. Um, yeah. But no, I, I I completely agree, and and that's what I love about the the efficiency models and the continuous learning that that can happen when we talk about lean and things of that nature. Um, I I do know that we've we've had you on the on the line here for a long time. One, I would love to talk about yachts, but I don't think we have time. Um, two, I am, I've been informed by my colleagues here at TouchPlan that you have been a Red Sox fan, a, a, a Red Sox fan. So one, how did you become one living up in the northern part of England and moving to New Zealand and Australia? I would assume that you'd be an all blacks fan or something of that nature living in your part of the world. <laughs> but, but please, well, I guess, inform, I guess I'm, 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 I'm still, I'm still English, you know, by, by birth and that's where my roots still are, I suppose. So, you know, I'm a, an England football fan ultimately, um, which is a bit disappointing um, last month. Um, they didn't go all the way. Um, 
you you're from New York, so are you a Yankees fan? I am. I am. But clearly, we wouldn't get along Sucks because be I you. can even see the hat and the baseballs on. <laughs> so was, yeah, I was going to say you can actually see. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and this guy. I think. Oh, that's just epic. I don't. I don't think anyone else in in your town has any of those items. <laughs> no. So so the back so the backstory is, and it, it it wasn't when I was in England. Um, it was when I moved to Australia. So, um. And they actually play baseball in in Australia. You know, they don't really. I don't. I don't think I've ever seen it in England. But there is actually a, a baseball league for about three months of the summer in Australia. Um, and obviously, there are some Australian players that go over to to play in the leagues in in America. Yep. But um, the backstory is that when I moved to Sydney, I had a, one of the reasons I moved to Sydney because when I was moving to Australia, I had the option of sort of pick a city. Um, and I had a friend who lived in Sydney, um, and I was like, well, you know, I'll move there. Um, and we basically decided to get an apartment and share an apartment. Um, so he was from Nottingham in the UK, um, but he'd actually spent a couple of years um, living in the Boston area um, and and worked in a restaurant on Cape Cod. Um, and I guess during that, I think he was there for a couple of years, maybe a bit longer. Um, you know, everybody's you know, Red Sox crazy around there. So he got into you know, oh, going know. to the baseball, yeah. going to see the, and obviously the football, the Patriots and, and so on and so forth. So, we shared an apartment for about a year, um, and I guess due to the time difference, so we would get up on a, you know, we would probably go out for a few beers on a Friday night, and then we'd get up on a Saturday morning. Um, and because of the way that I guess the Friday night baseball games in on the East Coast in the US start just after seven o'clock, well, that's just after nine o'clock on a Saturday morning in Australia on the East Coast. So he would put the games on. So he would sit and watch the Red Sox games on a Saturday morning before going out and doing something in the afternoon. Um, you know, we just sat talking and, you know, we'd have the game on and, um, and I didn't know anything about baseball. Um, I basically started to learn and, you know, cause I wanted to understand the game and I guess it just, it just got hold of me. I just got really <laughs> into it basically. Um, and like I said, we lived together for a year and then, um, he, uh, he went to Brisbane and you know, I stayed in Sydney and, but I carried on sort of watching games. And actually each year I've probably got more and more, uh, sort of entrenched into the game um, and more and more interested in it. And then and I actually went over to Boston for the first time, probably a couple of years after I sort of lived with him and decided, you know, well, I'll go to a game. Um, and yeah, and then that was it. So <laughs> I'm yeah. pretty... Um, you're, you're locked in. Yeah, locked in, uh... absolutely. Um, so uh, to the point where, you know, I, I came over for the World Series in 2018 and went to every game in the World Series. Uh, because I'd, I'd missed the 2013 World Series and thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do that again because, you know, um, knowing the, the history of the Red Sox, it might be another 100 years. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I better, you know, next time the opportunity comes up, I, be, I better take it. So, um, yeah, so I came over and, and basically went to all the games in Boston and L.A. Um, to make sure I didn't sure miss it, basically. I'm sure there's a ton of people listening to this right now blown away that you went to every single game in in but we we normally we we we'll we'll be able to hit one or one or two. But I absolutely love the dedicated <laughs> trip. I also believe I I noticed uh, a wine book or two, and are I believe those are growlers behind you. Uh, yeah. So they're growlers. So um, those those two shelves just tell me that you have to move to Boston. That those are the two <laughs> things that. Bostonians and, and people from New England love the most. 
So, so yeah, so this one, this, and craft this, beer. There you go. Yeah, this one, this one's a craft beer company in, in Perth. Um, this one's actually in Canada. So, um, I actually, we were traveling in Canada a few years ago and we went to this place called Rossland. You can guess why we went there. Um, yeah. it was a little bit, it was a little bit out of our way, about four hours. Um, but they also had really uh, a craft brewery. So I brought that back from Canada. Um, yeah, and the, and the wine book. So me and my partner, um, I guess we, we collect wine. Um, we like wine. She actually works in the wine industry. Um, so that's why there's a lot of books and on wine yeah. behind me. I mean, for, for as closely as uh, our two companies should work together, we got to get you and your partner over here and get you to a Red Sox game <laughs> and, and multiple craft breweries with us. Um, at Absolutely. Um, as soon as the, the borders reopen, um, oh, I, I will be I will be back over there. That's for sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I've probably not missed a se- not missed a game or not not missed a year where I've not been to a Red Sox game um, for for several years until last year when obviously nobody went. Um, right. You're not you're not alone there, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, often even just on the west coast. So if we're going on the west coast, to sort of time it on a trip when the Red Sox are going to be are going to be over there. So I've seen them in Seattle. Um, LA, uh, the Angels and Dodgers, um, and uh, we were actually planned to see them in Texas last year, just before the pandemic, and obviously that all uh, turned to custard, didn't it? Yeah, I actually. But yeah, I'm, I I'm, I'm looking forward really to coming cool over and, and getting out with you guys. Uh, a colleague of mine, I, you might have met Matthew Decoyer in the past, but we went to go see Billy Joel at Fenway last week. I heard about it that. Was, yeah, it was quite. Yeah quite the concert it was pouring yeah. down rain Fenway. we were basically on the field <laughs> it was but we had a good time for sure did they put the top on <laughs> oh it just it, it just you just stand there in the pouring down rain and billy's standing there perfectly dry with his piano and you're drinking Fenway twenty dollar beers and and still having the time of your life so oh uh, yeah there's, there's um, nothing bad there, but I, I definitely want to thank you for jumping on. I know that your day is beginning and this is, this is a hard shot to start your day with, but it, it really has been, it's been super enjoyable. I, I know that Finn and I will, will want to hit you up for, for another conversation and, and maybe we just have an entire conversation about yacht manufacturing to, <laughs> to appease the host here, but yeah, the the the, 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 yeah, the the manufacturing side of it was interesting, um, but the taking them out on sea tests um, and uh, the weekend uh, cake days, as they call them, sailing out to the small islands off of Auckland, that was that was even more fun. So, yeah, there's a yeah, fair bit to talk yeah, about I there. Bet, I bet <laughs> it was. I bet it was. <laughs>